It's a beautiful, balmy 82 degrees in Boulder, Colorado. Traffic is light. You're listening to The Word in the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Mossett. And my name is Dr. Scott Powell. <laughs> is this real? Yeah, it's real. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is, well, we already said what it is. We said everything. Okay, good night, everybody. Thanks for listening. Oh my gosh, dude. I was, I thought I was going to say absurd things because of your absurdity. That's yeah, like you did. amazing. That's why we had to start this three times. <laughs> oh, Father Peter, how you doing, man? Dude, I'm doing really good. Um, we're trying to get hot water into my sink. Um, we, we, that's not a metaphor. No, 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 literal dude. My, my aunt Donna hooked us up with some, uh, like serious amounts of gummies, dude. That's true. Dude. I'm loving it. Thank you. Did she do that artwork on the gift bag all by herself? That was uncle Jerry. That is pretty cool. I know that was my uncle Jerry. He's always called me Padre Pedro. Padre Pedro. I know. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? It is. And it's got the little... Uh, Christos symbol. It's wonderful. They're they're de- very dedicated l- listeners, so it's a big awesome. shout out for them. What's up? Well, shout out to you guys. Just, well, yeah. shout out to all of you guys because you know why? Tell me. Big news today. It's the 26th Sunday in Ordinary Time. <laughs> it is actually the World Day of Peace today, so we should try to be kind to each other. Now, when you and I. World Day of Peace is this like like the day we're podcasting or a Sunday? The day we're podcasting. Oh, it's World so Day Pope of Peace? So Pope Francis gave his big address in a CC yesterday. Oh, gosh, it's so funny because I got this really, really harsh email. <laughs> and, <laughs> on, and like, on, well, the day before the World Day, on P, on the Day of Peace Eve. That's the day of getting out, venting your frustrations. Yeah, somebody's, The World Day of Frustration <laughs> Venting. Airing of grievances. It's, it was so funny. In the, in the, in the email, somebody called me a, a, uh, that I wear my hair like a dirty hippie. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that I'm not a normal priest. <laughs> you don't look like a normal priest. Oh, no, I look like. Well, no, I don't know. What did it say? I said that you're not what if a she's normal listening? priest. What if the person's listening? Oh, well, then they know that they spoke to me and that Ooh. it brings so much joy to my heart because I'm not a normal priest. And this, you know what? When I, when I, I think you look very like uh, Orthodox and like Russian Orthodox, exotic, Eastern oh. with your with your beard and your hair man bun. Dude, what thanks? I bet any Orthodox priest would punch me in the face if I said he had a man bun. <laughs> <laughs> that just doesn't seem very. But this is this is what I know is that like when I was start, started to study to be a priest or when mm-hmm. I first heard my call, there was this moment when I like the uh, you know how like there are certain scripture scriptures that like just hold with you as you go through your days. Indeed, it's it's kind of hard to discern which ones hold with you. But like this one said, um, um, I came not to call the righteous but sinners. They are the ones who need a physician. Yeah. The sick need a physician, not the healthy. Yeah, I think you stitched together three different verses, but still. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this all works together. Yeah, yeah. But but that's like always my thought, and so it's like my my question is is if if I look like a dirty hippie, I am so happy because guess who needs a physician? The dirty hippies. Yeah, so they can see me as one of them. I am not. I'm not meant to be like. That's what like I was so you inspired. You just look like you. I know. I am me. You were about. He was about to send. He found a bunch of pictures of Jesus. On his phone that actually looked like he does right now, and she was gonna he was gonna send that back. I was just person. gonna send the link. That's Which, all. It was good that you held back on that. Although yeah. maybe you did it without me knowing. I don't know. No, I. I well, I mean, I still may. Yeah. Just all right. Just because, like, dude, I, my, it's my imitation of Christ. Well, you know what's not peaceful? Talk to me. The eh? readings Ace. today, they're all pretty rough. Right? There's not much about peace. They're all there's a lot of strife in the readings Ooh, today. Yeah, if you yeah, ask yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. We're starting to get towards the end of ordinary ordinal time. You can tell things are heating up yeah. in the in the liturgical calendar. In the world they're heating up. 
And hey, I, we had like I think if you're joining us for the very first time, you just will not let me get into this podcast. Later. No, if you if you're joining us for the very first time, we sent an email listserv to all of our people. Yeah, and it said, "Hey, you guys, check out the Lanky guys." And so I really hope that we have a couple news li- listeners. Well, yeah, and, thank you very much to any of you who are tuning in for the first time. Welcome, get comfy. It's gonna and, get weird. It's already pretty weird. I mean, yeah. this, that's a, that's the thing. So w- what our idea with this podcast is, is to try to find the common idea between all four readings. The Old Testament reading. The connecting reading, tissue, the, if you will. The connecting tissue. Connective so, tissue. Connect- Shoot, I blew it. <laughs> that's normal. So <laughs> welcome to the podcast. So our first reading uh, today. Oh, we're jumping into it. Yeah, Yay. Is Amos 6, 1A, 4 through 7. Which we're actually going backwards from our reading last week, which was from Amos 8. So anyway, we're not. Sometimes the readings are more sequential this time. And some of you, you guys gr- don't care. Some of you grew up gr- um, eating famous Amos cookies. Yes, you did. Maybe all of you. Um, we skip a big chunk because there's a lot of geography nobody cares about. But we'll talk about <laughs> it because I care. All right, our responsorial <laughs> psalm is coming from Psalm 146, uh, verse seven, and then eight through nine, and nine through ten. And the response itself is from one B. And to be or one not to be. Okay, nice. our second reading is First Timothy six, eleven through sixteen. Which, um, by the way, if you guys uh, don't read the readings before you listen to the podcast, you're gonna miss like everything. So I would just <laughs> suggest pause now. Do 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 do. Oh, and and read the readings. Do 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 do. They can just pause. You don't have to sing the whole time. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Our gospel is coming from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Wonderful. So um, we started talking about Amos last week. We did. That's and, true. Uh, there goes the microphone again. Um, it's all right. You're stuck with it now. Scott Scott gave me the, do we have one bad microphone stand? I didn't mean to. It's actually, it's always kind of a fun game to see who's going to have the bad mic. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like tossing the dice. So we started talking about famous Amos last week yep. and about how um, famous Amos was, um, um, the Katniss Everdeen of the <laughs> biblical world. Father Andrew Dickinson gave a shout out on his Facebook page, and he totally credited that line to you. I know, and, and I held my tongue out of humility, but I guess I just broadcasted it on the podcast. No, Scott, I said it. You did not. I, I said it. I no, I said that this. It's like Katniss. No, you didn't. It mm-hmm. was totally me. Are we I'm really going to have an argument it. about this? Okay, so we start. Pa- hold on, I'm pausing the podcast. We're gonna fa- we're gonna get to the bottom of this. And we're back. Okay, so we just reviewed. Uh, we had a, a review on the play, and I said Hunger Games, to which um, Scott said he, she is. He is the Katniss Everdeen of the biblical world. It was so. like the, one of the funniest things I've said in the podcast. <laughs> that, that I just need. You're the funny guy on the podcast, so I need a little bit of credit when I say something amusing. All right. Well, we got to get back to business, right? We know I'm hilarious. Now that that's established, let's get back to it. So Amos. Now, uh, I mentioned that we're, we're kind of going back. What? Yeah, there's yeah. been a lot that's transpired in between. A lot of editing this Keep week. Keep going. I am going. I'm just laughing at you. And you're giving me weird faces. Okay. All right, here's the thing about Amos. Um, yeah, again, we've talked about Amos. Amos is a prophet from the south, from Judah, right? From This is after the split of the kingdom. So the ten tribes have founded their own kingdom in the north. They have become very prosperous. They've started their own temples, their own worship, their own priesthood. They're worshiping different gods, all these things. And they've become very successful, very prosperous, very um, powerful and oppressive and fat and lazy and everything else. So we have this prophet from the South who's kind of a kind of a Katniss Everdeen, if you will, coming from, <laughs> from the South up to the North to from simplicity. He's a farmer 
to speak to the people in power and to call them back and to say, you guys, it even, and I even hesitate on that because it's not even so much that he's calling them back as just pointing out how terrible they are. There's not a whole lot of hope in the book of Amos. It's a lot. It's a pretty dark book. You it guys really are a disaster. I mean, and, and where we come in today, there's a lot of judgment taking place. Woe to well, those who are at ease in uh, Zion. No, yeah. So, so this is different, though. So this chapter. So the little outline I have. Oh. So the first couple chapters are about how the nations have rebelled against God. Chapter three is about how Israel has been deaf and blind to this, and they just don't get it. Chapter five is how Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be destroyed. Um, and then it's going to go on. But in chapter six, there's this little pause. It's this kind of intermission to look back to his own people of Zion. So, so Zion is shorthand for the southern kingdom. Zion is the mount of the temple, right? Jerusalem. Right. And what he's saying is in the middle of all of this death and destruction and punishment and judgment and condemnation on the northern kingdom, he says, whoa, 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 don't you guys get too comfortable, Zion. Right. As you're sitting there, kind of sitting back and laughing and scoffing and judging your brothers and sisters in the north, you guys are not much better. Mm. So this is sort of Amos's little segue, not segue, but his, um, oh, what would you call it? His little, his little pause to look back to his own people and say, not so fast. Yeah, you, you, you guys are not the hook just because you're, you know, Mr. Southern Kingdom. But, he, but look at what he says to them. So woe to the complacent in Zion. So what, what he's going to get to kind of where this whole book is going is, again, it's different than it's not if you repent, then everything will be OK. If you don't, there'll be trouble. It's basically saying you're done. This, this kingdom is going down. It's too late. You all can have hope and redemption right, because you're right. individuals, but the kingdom, the northern kingdom of Israel, it's done. And then he's looking back to the southern kingdom and saying, you guys aren't that much better. There is restoration for you. There's hope for you still, but it's, you know, Assyria is is going to become a superpower very, very soon. They're going to wipe out the northern kingdom and they're going to really beat up on the southern kingdom. But, but listen to what he says, because it's really... It's pretty profound if you read it. Woe to the complacent in Zion back in the south. You're lying on your beds of ivory. You stretched comfortably on your couches. You're eating lambs that you take from your flock, cows from the stall. You improvise the music of the harp. You're like David. You're devising your own accompaniment. You drink drink wine from bowls. I just like the imagery of just giant <laughs> bowls. Drinking my wine. It's like those giant margarita glasses and, you know, the Rio. You're drinking wine from bowls. You're anointing yourself with the best oils. You're not made ill. Yet you are not made ill by the collapse of Joseph. Joseph is yet another shorthand for the northern kingdom, right? Got it. Ephraim, which is another shorthand for for that kingdom, the, the tribe of Ephraim, who was led by Joseph. Therefore, now they shall be the first to go into exile, and their wanton revelry will be done away with. You're going to have to watch your brothers and sisters um, get beaten up on and go off into slavery and go off into exile, and you're sitting there on your comfortable couches gorging yourself on wine and lamb, watching it all take place. Woe to you. It's um, mm. I, it's hard to actually... So, I mean, that sort of speaks for itself, and yeah. I think... I think the rest of the the readings are actually the answer to the issues that this first reading poses. Ooh, so that's I really like what we need. What you're posing. This is what we need to know about the first reading. This is the context. Here's what's happening. Right? Makes yeah. sense. Yeah, absolutely. To which we respond in 146. Yeah, Psalm or 146. Or praise, 145. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Praise the Lord, my soul. Um, oh my soul. <laughs> Worship I, his holy name. I couldn't figure out actually why I had that song stuck in my head all day. And now, oh my I see. soul, 
So I'll blessed worship is his holy name. Oh my goodness. Blessed is he who keeps faith forever, secures justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry. The Lord set the captives free. And then the second stanza says things like the Lord gives sight to the blind, raises up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the just. The Lord protects strangers. Really, this whole psalm is prophetic in the sense that it's giving all these attributes of the Messiah mm. when he comes. And of course, in Christian hindsight, we recognize, okay, we are supposed to share in those attributes because Christ has them, because we live in Christ, be, and only because we live in Christ, we can keep faith. We can secure justice for the oppressed. We can give sight to the blind and, and raise up those who are bowed down because those are attributes for Jesus. So in a certain sense, what this is saying is, man, look at the darkness that the world is undergoing in this first reading, which is, again, we can't separate ourselves from the things they're saying, this complacency and stretch on our couches, ignoring the plight of the people around us, right. even if even if they dwell in, in profound sin. Right. We just dwell in the security of the people who are sitting around us, and we just don't care. I mean, this is us. How do we care? What do we do about it? What can we do to actually help? Well, we look to our Messiah, who is the one who does all of these things. And, and this is... I've been I've become so disillusioned with politics. I think most of our country is being disillusioned. No, no, that, that's with politics. exactly where my mind started going as I was like, "Oh my goodness, like who will save us? Yeah. Send us a savior." Well, again, it's like this weird false dichotomy. I mean, like it, it, it's like saying, "Oh, both sides are saying we're the only ones who actually care about anybody." And we're we're the, ones... the only ones who will save you. Right. Look to us. Yes. Both and both sides again. It's it's there's no there's no shortage of it. And both sides are abjectly demonized. Not only are we the only ones who save you, but the others will destroy you. <laughs> the evil one is the one who destroys. Right. L- the Lord is the one who saves. And when we mix those things up, we lose sight of all of Christianity. Wow. I mean, I don't know how I have much more to say about the political process than that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that kind of sums up everything. The yeah. evil one destroys. The Lord saves. Period. Yeah. And when you see problems in the Old Testament, both with the northern country, kingdom of Israel and with the south, yeah. it's because they trust in something else to be their savior. Right. God cannot save us. God cannot help us. So we will put our trust in this political leader or in this military alliance or in this economic idea or, or whatever it is, trade partnership. This is the story of the Old Testament. And when she puts her trust in those things, she falls. You cannot serve both God and mammon. You can't. You'll either love one and hate the other. Or, or love, love one, one and hate, hate the other. the other. <laughs> well said. Very good. Dude, you, you took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yes. Yes, indeed. Oh, I forgot. I was going through my little outline. I was proud of it. Um, my outline of Amos from before, it had to do with the rebellion and Israel can't hear. All of chapter six I titled as Life as Usual with Disaster. <laughs> and this is notes I made years ago, but... It's Israel is living life as usual. Like everything's fine. We're just drinking our bowls out of our, drinking our wine out of our bowls and sitting around. And we're not trusting in, you can do it on both sides, I think. And again, reading through the Psalm, I can sit back also and wait for someone to save me. Right. Instead of seeking my savior and my Messiah and trying to live in his grace. You know what I mean? Right. Well, because that's the other problem our society and our culture falls into Number one, messianism of all sorts of different people, but also complacency of, well, it's out of my hands. I can't do anything about yeah, it. It's, Somebody else will have to save me. Right. No, will, Christ has saved me, and I will unite myself with him. Absolutely. I mean, that's where that's where you look and you say, here's, 
like oftentimes the the one political leader is going to say, oh, we have the plan. We know exactly how to go forward with this. Then another political leader is going to say, you already know the plan and you just have to actually be set free so that you can do what you want. And yeah. and both are actually a false reality. We yeah. I, we both need leadership and personal investment. Yes, I mean, <laughs> that's and, absolutely true. And that's actually the demonstration of Jesus Christ. What does Jesus do? He says, I am on about my father's work, but I'm going to put everything that I have within me to the Father's work. What's that saying? Um, pray as though everything depended on God and work as though everything depended on you. Yes, thank I you, like St. That. Vincent de Paul. Is that St. Vincent de Paul? Yes, yeah, VDP. I knew it wasn't Curtis Martin. He just, dude, you know, they say great artists copy. I mean, mm. good artists copy, great artists steal. Ah, that's a good line. Who'd uh-huh. you steal that from? That uh, line. I don't know. It's starting to get secular. Uh, <laughs> or circular. Uh, Either way. Secular, dude. Secular is when you pull off a totally sweet um, trick on the Narnar. Okay, speaking of the Narnar, that actually is uh, a good segue into First Timothy. Okay. Talking about leadership and who, because we do need people to lead us. The church, this, I mean, I know it's not politics and I know it's a different kind of a reality, but this is why the church gives us a hierarchy and a structure. And we don't have the kind of church that says it's just you and Jesus, figure it out. We right. actually have guidance and shepherding and leadership. Yeah. And that's what First Timothy is all about. Because remember, we've been in First Timothy for a little while. First Timothy is a letter from St. Paul to Timothy, who is a new bishop, a new uh, leader in the city of Ephesus. And it's this letter that's being written to the whole congregation, giving him the authority that he needs to lead. And so the reading that we get this week, I actually want to read what's right before it and right after it, because... It changes the way that this fits into the rest of the liturgy. So what we get, it says, uh, son of man, you pursue pursue righteousness and devotion, faith and love and patience, gentleness, blah, blah, blah. Well, not blah, 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 but etc. Yeah, yeah. So at the be- earlier in chapter six, it says this. Now, remember, Paul is giving instructions on Timothy on how to lead. And they're instructions that the whole congregation gets to hear. But this is uh, verse two. Um Teach and urge these duties. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus and his teaching with accords and godliness, he's puffed up with conceit. He knows nothing. He has a morbid craving for controversy and disputes about words which produce envy and dissension and Mm. slander and suspicions and wrangling among men who are depraved in mind and bereft of truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Um, there's great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, clothing with these, we should be content. But those who are desire, desire to be rich, they fall into temptations, into a snare, into many senseless and hurtful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. The love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced their hearts with many pangs. Wow. This is, in a very real way, the description of the northern kingdom that Amos is speaking to. Mm. This is what they've done. Yes. Their own mind, their own deceits, their own envy, their riches, their wealth, their comfort, their prosperity, their everything else, right? So imagine... Paul is saying this, God is saying this to the northern kingdom, the things that Paul just said to Timothy. And in response, we get the reading that shows up from Timothy this week. Aim but at all as, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, and you, gentleness. Yeah, don't be like the northern kingdom, in other words. This right. is really what Amos is trying to say to right, Zion. Right. But as for you, Zion, don't be like what you're witnessing. Turn from this 
shun all of this, aim for righteousness, godliness, right? All of these things that Paul tells Timothy. Yeah. Doesn't that change the context a, a little bit, though, when you put it with the other readings? Oh, it does. It's good. And it's like, you know, keep the commandment un- unstained and free from reproach into the appear- appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, because you're not. Right. I mean, people rarely need to be corrected and told things unless they're actually doing those things. Exactly. I'm not trying to, well, and we know Ephesus. I was going to say, or, don't, or, you, bad ha- or you have an, it's like, there's nothing more laborious than an answer to a question you didn't ask right. or a correction for behavior that's not off. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to put, a, not to put too fine a point on it. Okay. Is that the same? Yeah. Um, what not he says, put right. Fine a two point on it. Oh yeah, yeah. Say I'm the only bee in, in your, your bonnet. bonnet. Um, Build a little birdhouse in your soul. I just saw a guy do that at karaoke. I was like, talk so long, dude. <laughs> oh yes, but what he says right after that is is pertinent too. He says, as for the rich of this world, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on uncertain riches, but on God who richly furnishes us with everything to enjoy. Right. And that's what we were talking about before. It's it's. Where it's a matter of where we put our trust. It's not riches that will condemn us, but it's what Paul says. It's the love of money right. that's the root of all evils. The, you know, I was I was reading a reflection from Pope Benedict in his Jesus of Nazareth book about the rich, and he says, you know, think about it. He's like Jesus isn't condemning the rich. As soon as the crucifixion, right after the crucifixion, who shows up in the story? Two wealthy people, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, and they show how they've actually used their wealth and their prestige to bear forth the fruits of their conversion and their awakening to Jesus Christ. And they buy the tomb and Nicodemus goes and is, is evangelistic, you know, all these things. Yeah. It's not about the money. It's about what you actually do with it and where you put your trust and your hope within that. Oh yeah. And this is the problem with the Northern kingdom is that they're putting their hope and their trust and their faith and their thankfulness in themselves. Mm. And they're going to be destroyed for that. And the Southern kingdom is going to do the exact same thing and they're going to be wiped out too, quite frankly. Yeah. So, I think that, that that could be a a big temptation of the United States. I think it is. Because we we yeah. Yeah, there's lots that could be said. Which leads us into uh the uh Luke 16 of a poor man Lazarus and the rich man who dines sumptuously every day. It does. And you proposed last week. So yeah, Lazarus and the guy who dies and the rich man. I propose you and you dispose. No, no, I I agree this time. Good good one. That's a bumper sticker. <coughs> so I, you propose, and I, I think I agree. Okay, let me say this. Let me back up. The last two weeks, we've had two important parables, all within the last couple of chapters. So chapter 15 was the parables of the lost and found, all which, which cap, the capstone of which is the prodigal son. Yep. Or the prodigal father, father. The merciful father. He's not prodigal. The father's fine. Well, he's the father of the prodigal. He's the father of the prodigal. Right. Anyway. Um, the prodigal, the prodigal son. The next one was the uh, the dishonest steward, right? Which we talked about last week. Yep. Which follows a very similar format as the prodigal son, a righteous, merciful leader slash father, an unrighteous, sinful, squandering servant slash son. This reconciliation, all these things. So they're very similar. And now we have this third one about the 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 Lazarus and the rich man who dies. I am convinced, having read through a bu- for the last few weeks. These three parables are inseparable. They cannot be read in isolation from one another. Ooh. Because remember, there's no chapter divisions in the original scriptures. Right. They're just, you know, some poor monk in the Middle Ages had to put those in. But originally, this was all together. And it, I think it was Pope Benedict, again, who pointed this out. I read his commentary on this particular parable to get some insight. But he points out all three of them actually begin the same way. And they begin the words, there was a blank man 
et cetera, et cetera. There was a man who had two sons. There was a rich man who had a servant. There was a rich man dressed in purple garments. They all begin with the exact same formula, Mm. which is kind of this little tip-off that maybe Jesus is doing something specific. They're all being told the same way. But there's also something that has to do with what, what comes in between the parable that we talked about last week with the dishonest steward and the parable that we get this week with Lather, Lath- Latherith. Latherith. <laughs> I don't know. I he he I likes to wash his hands. I lather my hair. Um, <laughs> that was quick on both our parts. Yeah, let's just real, say. real quick. But that, something comes in between because I, I still am convinced, and if you listened to the podcast last week, great. If you didn't, that's okay. But this dishonest steward, he's shown to be a, a punk. It, it's not... It's not good what he's done. Mm. And Jesus kind of caps that off by saying, look, you, you've, right. it's either God or mammon. This guy's put his faith in his mammon. Now, it's the mercifulness and the righteousness and the goodness of the, stu- of the uh, master who allows mercy for the dishonest steward, allows mercy for the whole village. The one act of the one small sin led to a big sin, which led to, for the master, a small act of mercy leading to a very big act of mercy. Ah. That's what Jesus is, I think, trying to say about God. But then in between, what do we have here? The Pharisees. So, and I've heard people try to make all sorts of acrobatics to try to show, oh, this is how the dishonored steward is actually really good. And Jesus is telling us to be like him. And this is great. No, he's telling us not to be like him. Be like the, or it's not even saying be like the master. It's saying God is like the master. Put your trust in him. And, and then the reason we kind of know this is because immediately after he says this, the Pharisees get ticked off. So listen to what it says. This is uh, chapter 16, verse 14. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they scoffed at him. So this parable Jesus just told about this dishonest steward, that sometimes we make these acrobatics to show why he's so great. Yeah. The Pharisees who love money scoff at this parable. They're like, what do you? So they understand that this guy is being shown as bad. Right. And but he said but Jesus said to them, "You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God." And then he goes on to talk about the law and Dude, the idea of divorce. Hold on, that's the who went a key for the whole dis- I know! The, 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 for the whole dishonest steward. I know. Why don't they don't include that? I don't know, but we could really use that. Yeah, that makes so so much sense. Which is the impetus, I think, for leading Jesus into this next parable about the rich guy and Lazarus. Right. But, But make no mistake, I mean, part of what Jesus is doing here is putting the Pharisees in the position of those in Israel from the first reading. He's saying you're like that. I mean, exactly how the first reading described them. Right. He's saying that's what you are. And again, we know the precedent. We know what happens to them. We know the sort of ruin that they lead the people to. And that's not to be mistaken. And then he says to the Pharisees, there was a rich man. So speaking of rich people, there was this one rich person who, uh, what, dressed in purple garments. Purple garments were the most valuable because it was the richest of the colors. Uh, Fine linens. They dined sumptuously. You could say they drank wine from bowls. You know, I mean, fill in the blank. Luxuriousness was theirs. It was his. Sorry, there's one. one oh, yeah, yeah, guy. yeah. Sorry. It's hard. So, but well, because of the brothers. I'm thinking about the brothers. Oh, uh, the brothers. Um, side note, though, we don't know if this is... Uh, scholars debate whether this is actually a parable or not. Do you know why? There was a rich man. He doesn't announce it as a parable? No, he doesn't announce the others as a parable either. But there's one thing that happens in this one that doesn't, I don't think, happen in any other parable. I do not know. Someone is given a proper name. Lazarus. Lazarus has a name. It's not this, there was a man and he had a son. He had this guy who actually had a name, which is fascinating to me. 
So I don't know. I just throw that out there. Yeah. So that's why scholars are like, well, is it a parable or is it not a parable? We're not totally sure because this guy has a name. Anyway, that being said, so um, this rich guy, he dined sumptuously. He lived extravagantly. And lying at his door was a poor man named Lazarus. It's also not coincidental that the poor man receives a name, the rich man doesn't. Yeah, his I mean, names exactly. identify value. And, yep. Uh, he was covered with sores, bummer, who would have gladly eaten his fill of the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. I was looking at this historically, and I didn't realize this. Apparently rich people, did you know this? They used to take big chunks of bread and use it to wash and dry their hands like sponges. They would use the bread to wash their hands and then throw it to the ground once they were done using it as towels. And he's like, I just want to eat that. Isn't that interesting? That's what he wants. Wow. That big loaf of bread that you just washed your hands with, I just want to eat that thing. Um, Eating the scraps that fell from the rich man's table. Dogs even used to come and lick his sores. And when the poor man died, he was carried away by the angels to the bosom of Abraham. And the rich man also died and was buried. And from the netherworld, uh, Hades, some translations say, where he was in torment, he raised his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he cried out, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger to cool my tongue, for I'm suffering torment in these flames. And Abraham replied, my child, remember that you received what was good during your lifetime while Lazarus received what is bad. Um, I, we don't have to read the whole thing. But a couple things to say about that. So again, I, I, I turned to Pope Benedict this week in Jesus of Nazareth, just to see what insights he had. Yeah. And it was it was fantastic. And one of the things he says, he said one of the one of the interpretive keys for this parable is actually the Psalms. And he pointed to a number of Psalms, specifically Psalm 73, which he called the the intellectual backdrop to this parable. And he says this. So he says in, in Psalm 73, we see the figure of the rich glutton before our eyes, and we hear the complaint of the praying psalmist. And Pope Benedict calls the psalmist in Psalm 73 Lazarus. He puts Psalm 73 in the mouth of Lazarus, which is interesting. And he says, so listen to Psalm 73. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as other men are. They are not stricken like other men. Their pride is their necklace. Their eyes swell out in fatness. They set their mouths against the heavens and before the people... And therefore the people turn and praise them and they find no fault with them. And they say, how can God know? Is there no knowledge in the, in the most high? Wow. And Benedict points out that this, this reality of the situation, why do bad things happen to good people and why do really good things happen to bad people is really causing a, a, a crisis of faith in this person. Does God really not see? Does he really not care? Does he not care about men's fate? And he says the turning point of Psalm 73 around verse 13 comes when the suffering man is in the sanctuary and he looks toward God and as he does so, his perspective changes. And he sees now that the seeming cleverness of the successful cynics is stupidity when viewed against the light of God. And he says, it's Psalm 73 verse 22, to be wise in that way is stupid and arrogant. It's like a beast. Wow. He realizes that I've put my trust in the wrong things. They've put their trust in the wrong things. My jealousy over their riches and their comfort and their extravagance, it's actually falsely placed because the perspective needs to be broader than that. That will not save them. That will not comfort them. Only God comforts them, which is exactly what, and we don't know what Lazarus is thinking during his lifetime, except he really wishes he had some bread. But then he goes into the bosom of Abraham and he sees reality for what it is. And he realizes that's my salvation. I mean, this is the theme that we've kind of been drawing out this podcast 
that salvation is God's alone. Right. It's not our riches. It's not comfort. It's not everything else. This is what the psalm, this turning point in the Psalm 73, this realization of, again, I love seeing, isn't that cool seeing that psalm from the perspective of Lazarus? It's really cool. Oh, I see it now. Yeah. And, you know, again, it's not that this rich man was rich. It's that he puts his, he's clearly, hindsight, you can see it. He's put his faith in his riches. He's put his faith in himself. He's been keeping up with the Joneses. Yeah. Or he is the Joneses. Yeah, of which others, keep, his brothers are trying to keep yeah, up with. Yeah, exactly right. Which is, yeah, it's very it's very uh, interesting, I think. You know, and, you, know you know, what's interesting is that um, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, doesn't for the seven deadly sins, he doesn't actually put lust as one of the seven. He calls it luxuria. Really? Yeah, and that, that that's lust is a subset of luxuria. Really? Which is the Latin term for luxury, which is sitting fat on your couches and going Ooh. for it, which is really interesting. It is. And I'm I just as you said that I thought of that story of David. Remember when he's he is I, I thought of the interconnectedness of luxury and lust and how that famous story of David David's huge fall. He's lounging oh, on his couch. Yes. He's late into the day. He's lazy. He didn't go to battle like he was supposed to. And then he sees this woman bathing. Luxury led to lust in his in his case. Absolutely. It's, it's just interesting that you point that out. Yeah. But let's read on. So then, um, so we have the two there in the afterlife, uh, Lazarus. By the way, it says that this rich man was in Hades, not Gehenna. Gehenna is the Hebrew idea of hell. He's in Hades, which is this waiting place. It's interesting that Jesus is using the Jewish imagery of the waiting place for the resurrection because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. Something even about the afterlife is going to change soon. So he's just kind of in this waiting place. He can see what's going on. Hold on. I thought that was Gehenna, not Hades. Gehenna is hell. I thought Gehenna was the waiting room and not that Hades. I believe it's the other way around. Okay. I'm pretty sure it's the other way around. Okay. I anyway. Can, I can handle that. You're smart. Yeah, it's the other way around. Um, but but here's what, what again, I, I'm leaning on Pope Benedict a lot today. Uh, my child, remember, you got all these good things. Now he's tormented. So remember then, um, he, he the rich man can't have the finger dipped in the cool water and touched to his lips. So he says, okay, fine. Plan B. Will you at least send someone back to my brothers to warn them so they don't suffer the... It's the first time in the story that the rich man shows any concern with someone other than himself. Ah. The very first time. And he says, send somebody, send Lazarus back from the dead. Yes. And what is Abraham? It's Abraham. Abraham says, no, if... Um, oh no, Father Abraham, if somebody blah blah. But Abraham says, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, the scriptures, in other words, neither will they be persuaded if someone should rise from the dead. What is the scriptural irony of this passage? I mean, you have that of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, that's the obvious one. I mean, of course, with, Jesus, with the they didn't the listen to Jesus, and, and well, they didn't listen to the they didn't listen to they the Old li- Testament, so yep. they couldn't understand who Jesus was. That's the obvious one. There's an underlying irony in here that I found really interesting, and again, I stole it from Benedict. I don't know. Plenty so there's Chaminos. a guy named Lazarus that Abraham says, "No, I don't want Lazarus to rise from the dead because nobody be- will believe." Lazarus. There is a guy named Lazarus, Lazarus. in the Gospels who, who is rises risen from, from the, dead. the dead. That should strike you as like, well, wait a second. Hold on. Wait, hold on now. Hold on. Yeah. Strike oh. that. Was Lazarus a poor man? No. No, not necessarily. No, he doesn't appear to be. Yeah. I mean, so, this I mean, is it's not. Re- don't don't dig it too direct of an analogy, but it's just interesting. I mean, it is. Because you're like, wait, if there's, there's no value in somebody there. rising from the dead, why does this other? I mean, the, the name can't be coincidence. By the way, the name Lazarus, do you know what that name means? No. It means... um. 
oh, what did it mean? It mean God, my my. It means God is my help, or God will help me. In other words, which even think about that. Here's this poor man lying, longing for salvation, and his name itself means, well, God will help me. Yeah. The rich man won't help me. These people won't help me. God will, and it's embedded into my very name. I wonder. I wonder if like the generosity of God is such that that one of the Pharisees was paying attention and oh. and recognized the connection between this story that he told them about Lazarus and then Lazarus himself, and just saying like. Hold on, like, like could be. Like, I mean, it, it, it's is it, again. I don't know, but listen. Let me listen to what you're yeah. about to tell me. Uh, and again, I'm stealing this straight up from from Benedict and Jesus. Yeah. And I'm just gonna read it. Um, he says, uh, "We're reminded of the resurrection of Lazarus of Bethany, recounted in John's Gospel." And he says, "What happens though? The evangelist tells us many of the Jews believed in him. That's John 11." So remember, Lazarus rises from the dead, and many people believe, right. which seems to fly in the face of what happens in this parable. So they said, no, they're not going to believe. But they do believe. Yeah. Okay. But they go on, those who believe, they went to the Pharisees, remember, to report what happened, whereupon the Sanhedrin gathered to take counsel, and they saw the affair in a political light. If this leads to a popular movement, it might force the Romans to intervene, leading to a dangerous situation. So they decide, we will kill Jesus. The rising of Lazarus in a roundabout way is the impetus for Jesus being killed. The miracle, says Benedict, leads not to faith, but to a hardening of hearts. Ooh. Isn't that interesting? Yes. Which is why you kind of get the insight into what Abraham's actually saying in this parable. Ooh. It actually led to the hardening of hearts. Now, it's a hardening of hearts that God allowed because he wanted to bring even a greater good because the ultimate Lazarus is Jesus himself. Right. Who took on the identity of wholesale of the poor and the oppressed and the beaten down and the scourge and the spit upon and everything else to show forth God's glory. Because again, God is his help, not us, not man. But we, there's we, so many layers to it. It's, it's fascinating. We were talking the other week about how Moses oh. identified himself with the people. Yeah. And how um, Abraham, Noah just was very concerned about his family. Yes, but I don't remember what 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 in that context what we Noah said. Noah was concerned with his family. Noah was oh, concerned with his family. Abraham yeah. was concerned about the righteous in Sodom. Remember in Sodom and Gomorrah? Yes. He's like, well, what if there's twenty righteous? What if there's ten righteous? Uh, I, exactly. But this he is, was concerned about the righteous ones. I know. And, and oh, I thought you were asking me. No. Uh, yes, this, I was. Oh, it's a rhetorical question. It was no. It was so to get us to the place where who is Abraham dealing with? He's dealing with the poor. In judgment of the righteous, the ones who are actually like the Pharisees, this is actually because the Pharisees are all the ones that are righteous by their own actions. And so what's actually happening is they're hearing, here's Abraham, the one who's deeply concerned about the righteous and their conversion, but he's actually concerned about something much greater and the wider reality where he's actually in the afterlife become more like Moses. Yes. And so, and so, and yet we see from this parable, it's the righteous who then are condemned. Jesus. Absolutely. Well, yes, from that point of view. Yeah, from that point of view. I mean, I'm just I'm just connecting. Yeah, yeah. It's so rich right here. Two other things. Talk to me. Number one, we forgot to mention this. Your theory, and I, I don't know how I got derailed. Your theory from last week, though, putting all these parables together, that the rich man who dies is the dishonest steward from the previous parable. Right. And if you read them in that way, you're like, Oh, oh man. Yeah. Wait, this dishonest steward, but he was so clever and he he put his faith in himself and he won all these riches and he won favor with everybody and he became comfortable and luxurious. Oh, but that's where it all leads. I mean, there's yeah. no way to show that that's the same thing, but if you imagine 
that this rich man was the steward from the previous parable. It's fascinating. Well, I mean, he, th- that's why if you read and you see this, it says that um, in Luke, it's, it's um, you are the ones who justify yourselves before men. This is um, uh, 1615. Uh, yeah. But Which God is what... knows your hearts for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Right. So he says, you've won favor with everybody, the whole he, community. He justified himself. Like literally it was a transaction in which he went and he justified the prices with everybody. Absolutely. But there's a but, though, to this, because this sounds very depressing. And it, 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 sounds like, it sounds like Amos. And Amos was a prophet of hopelessness in a certain sense. I mean, there's always hope. There's always <laughs> redemption. But he's saying, look, this kingdom is done. Right. But here's the problem. Jesus isn't saying that to the Pharisees. He's not saying you're done for. No. Because this is where the hope lies. Now, think about this parable or whatever it is. This man dies. He suffers and he dies. The rich man wants a risen Lazarus to go back to the wealthy and the powerful and show them, no, look, this is the truth. And Abraham says, that's not going to work. And we sort of have a proof in the gospel that that's not how it works because it's in the crucifixion that you have the rich and the powerful, the likes of Nicodemus and John, the Roman centurion and the synoptics, who come to faith in Jesus Christ, not because he rose from the dead, but in the midst of the suffering. Yes. The suffering, the poverty, the smallness, the emptyingness, the emptyingness is what leads them to faith. And then Jesus busts out with, lean on me when you ain't got no money. Nice. And I'll help you carry on. All right, everybody. We (laughs) will be back next week with a brand new episode. With the Lanky Guys. So thank you for joining us. Um, uh, We got distracted a lot this week. And so keep tuning in. They don't know that because we try to edit it. Hey, God bless you. We'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. The Word on the Hill is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.lankyguys.org. See you next week.